Grab your Bible and flip to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We'd love for you to borrow that or keep it if you don't own one. And uh, because we're just going to be looking at the scriptures, going verse by verse, seeing what the Word of God says to our life today. And um, I'll tell you, this week's reading, we've been kind of journeying through the Bible together as a church, and we're approaching the end of this reading plan. And and this reading has been uh, fascinating this week. There is so much good stuff. Uh, so one of our staff texted us and said, anybody else just highlighting the entire week's reading this week? Because there's so much going on here. And it was hard to decide what exactly to preach on. Because chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 12 and chapter 13 are all really good. It's all good stuff. I think any of it would have been a good place for us to go. But I settled on chapter 9 uh, partially, partially because it was the most asked about chapter of this week's reading. And, uh, and so part of my role here as we've been preaching through this reading plan is, uh, is to serve you guys as you've been reading. And so the, chapter 9 has raised the most questions, um, and so I felt it would be helpful if we study it together uh, today. Um, it's one of the most controversial and hotly debated chapters in the entire Bible because it says some things that are somewhat hard to swallow. And uh, at the onset, uh, if you know anything about chapter 9, I, I just want to tell you on the onset that this is not a Calvinistic text, okay? Chapter 9 of Romans is not an Armenian text. And um, this is a text, a passage in Holy Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, from God for us, and we are to study it and learn from it, to um, love it, to know it, to apply it, to receive it, to cause it to cause us to glorify God through it. And so, if I, I kind of say that because if words like predestination or sovereignty or election kind of trigger you a little bit because you think they're teaching Calvinism. Those words are not Calvinistic. Those words are biblical. And so we have to wrestle with uh, what the Bible says about these things. Romans 9 is the place to go. I wouldn't personally consider myself necessarily a Calvinist, um, it's definitely not how I grew up or how I was raised or the churches that I was in. The conclusions that I will teach today are what I have come to from studying Scripture. And so I hope that we can all receive it uh, with uh, grace. Um, so let's read it. And I think you'll see, if you haven't read it yet, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. And, uh, and then we will pray for, for God to guide us. Romans 9, verse 1 through 29. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears 
may witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs from uh, their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Will you say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter now right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed says in Hosea, those whom were not my people, will, I will call my people. And her who has not believed, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we'd have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it was based on works, they have stumbled over a stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Before we pray, I'm going to ask you to pray for two things. I'm going to ask you to pray first for yourself as I pray. Would you pray for yourself that God would teach you, that God would give you understanding and clarity to receive his word today? And would you pray for me to preach his word accurately and, um, and to guide my speech? Would you do that? Let's all pray together, church. Father in heaven, you are God over all things. And we come to learn from you, God. So Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, that your Holy Spirit would teach and guide us, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of who you are and how you work in our lives and in this world. Father, I pray that um, we would receive your word today with humility and that you would teach us. I pray that you'd guide my speech. Uh, help me to only say what is true and um, draw us close to you in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Amen. Well, some context for where we uh, take off here in, uh, in chapter 9 of Romans. Well, we had just finished up chapter 8, and chapter 8 is the glorious chapter of Romans. Um, uh, he, he said some really amazing things in Romans, things like Romans 8.28. This is the one that everybody knows and loves, where it says... Um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so, you know, we love that verse, you know, that, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He also ended the chapter with this glorious text in, chapter, in verse 31 of chapter 8, where he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, those are some incredible promises of God. I should have preached that. It'd have been a lot more happy sermon, wouldn't it? We left here just charged up, you know? But what happens is he says all this and he explains all these promises that God has given his people. 
But the problem is that with the expansion and the growth of this early church, more Gentiles were being saved than Jews. This uh, movement called Christianity, Christianity that began with a Jewish Messiah and Jewish apostles and started in Jerusalem and was largely Jewish in origin. As it spread into the world, what happened was the Jewish people, by and large, rejected it. They rejected their own Messiah and Gentiles received it. So non-Jews received it. And so more and more non-Jews were being added to the church and less and less actual Jewish people were being added to the church, which made them ask some questions. The Jewish believers began to ask if God has promised all these things to Israel. Has God's promise failed? Since Israel is rejecting it? Well, it's a great question, and and that's what Paul seeks to answer in chapter 9. And so what he's going to do is that he's going to restate for us God's heart and God's plan and his goodness and trustworthiness and his sovereignty. That's actually what chapter 9 is all about. I don't know, probably in your Bible, like mine, the heading, which are not inspired, but they're helpful sometimes. The heading is for me, says God's sovereign choice. Chapter 9 is a lot about the sovereignty of God. That's actually the main idea today is that God is sovereign over all things. That God is sovereign over all things. Now, uh, let me give you a few definitions of sovereignty to help us grasp what that means. It means that God is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. God sovereignly controls the universe, which is to say that nothing in the universe occurs without God's permission. The fact that God is um, sovereign essentially means that he has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. God's sovereignty means that he is absolute in authority and unrestricted in his supremacy. And so the big idea today is that God rules, that God is sovereign over all. Now, what does that look like? Five things. The first one is God's sovereign heart. Look at how he starts this chapter. Paul starts by saying, I'm speaking the truth. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul here is brokenhearted by the state of his fellow Jews who don't know Christ. After even sharing all that beautiful stuff we just read in chapter 8, he's even gripped with the reality that those promises are not going to be a reality for all his brothers in in his uh, lineage, but only those who accept it by faith in Christ. So much so that if possible, he would be willing to substitute himself 
for their salvation. He says, if, if, if possible, like, I wish I could self be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He'd be willing to go to hell to get them to heaven. Now, that's not possible, of course, but this is his heart. So I, I just want us to understand as we unpack these hard uh, to receive, sometimes hard to swallow truths today, although glorious, um, that this is not just philosophical for Paul. This is personal. And he does this with a, a heavy heart. But I think also he's reflecting God's heart because the reason so God's sovereign heart is because I think Paul is reflecting God's heart. Paul can't uh, substitute himself for the salvation of others, but Christ did. And I think he's reflecting what Christ's heart is for people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Christ, sin, to be, uh, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so Paul is reflecting Christ's heart for people. The reality is that Christ did that for us, that he did substitute himself, that he did die so that we could live. And I just wonder if we have the same heart for the lost as Paul did, as Jesus does. Just think, would you be willing to give up your spot in heaven so that someone else could have it? I don't know that I would, could necessarily do that. But I think what he's communicating is that if we're going to reach the lost, we must love the lost. We must love the lost. And so maybe we can even just pray regularly, God, give me a love for the lost. I don't, I don't, I don't have that heart. Would you give me that heart for those who don't yet know you? But then he goes on to talk about uh, the blessing of Israel, the kind of uh, privileges that they have enjoyed in their relationship with God. Verse 4 says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he talks about the adoption, that out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel to set them apart, to adopt them as his own among all the nations. They're the chosen nation. His glory, this is God's presence with them as he came in glory and dwelled on earth in the temple. So they facilitated, they were blessed with the glory of God. The covenant, God made an agreement with these people. Imagine the God of the universe chose these people and entered into an agreement with them. That he's going to bless them, that he's going to save them. That they're going to be his people. They're going to be different than all the other people. And the giving of the law. So God gave them a law revealing not only the best way to live. If we live according to the law of God. It's really the best uh, way for human flourishing. But also 
He reveals God's character. What is God like? What does God believe is right and wrong? Like he reveals the character and nature of God in his law. Now we see the law as something bad. We're like, we're so glad that we're freed from the burden of the law. And we see it kind of negatively today, but they would have loved the law. That's why David could say in uh, Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. They saw the law as a gift. Other nations, they don't get this. We got this from God. And the worship, they were the nation that facilitated the worship of the true and living God. The promises, God made promises to Israel that he didn't make to any other nation. The patriarchs, they had a rich, wonderful history and tradition. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the other patriarchs that they inherited. Best of all, the Christ. He says Israel is where what produced the Messiah. Salvation came to the whole world through the Jewish people. And if you weren't certain, he says there in verse 5, is the Christ who is God over all. Jesus is God, and the title of the sermon is God over all from that verse, because that's the theme of the text, that Jesus is God over all, that he is sovereign in total control. He's over all, he rules all. And so as we move forward into the challenging nature of this chapter, um, keep in mind God's heart for the lost. Because this point forward, we're not going to be seeing as much God's heart as God's sovereignty. And so keep in mind the heart of God as we study these things. The second thing about God's sovereignty is that God's, uh, we see God's sovereign election. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendant from Israel belong uh, to Israel. And so he's addressing the, the question that it started with is, has God failed? Has his promises failed? Because not all Israel is believing it. Now he's saying, uh, no, no. And the reason why, the second part of verse 6, he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's saying not all people who are ethnically Jewish are the true Israel. You are not saved because of your race or ethnicity or your family history. You're not saved because of the denomination that you're a part of or the church that you belong to. He's like, God doesn't do group salvation. It's, uh, it's an individual thing by faith in Christ that you're grafted into the true Israel. And he illustrates this through the origin of Israel. Verse 7, he says, Not all the children of Abraham, because they are of his offspring, but through Isaac shall be your offspring named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So, so uh, verse 9, For this is what is said about this time next year I'll return, and Sarah shall have a son. So he recalls to them the origin of the nation of Israel, that God chose this man named Abraham out of all the pagan nations. There was no people of God, and he grabbed Abraham and said, I'm going to start a new nation with you. You're going to be my people. And then Abraham, though, didn't have any kids. And so now he's older in his age. They're in their 90s, approaching 100. And God makes this promise, or he made a promise, that you're going to have a son. And they couldn't see how that would happen. You know, most people in their 90s aren't having babies. And so uh, what they did was 
Well, especially Sarah was barren, his wife. So what they did was they acted in their own flesh, and he uh, had a child with Hagar, their servant, uh, Sarah's servant. And so now he is trying to fulfill the promise of God through the flesh. And that's not what God wanted for him at all. But in spite of that, God still miraculously gives them a son through Sarah named Isaac. Now, so now you have this weird family dynamic. Abraham now has two sons. The older, who would normally get uh, the inheritance and the blessing from the father, is the son of the flesh. The younger, who would normally not get the blessing and the inheritance and all of that, is the son of promise. And he's saying, even though there was two sons, and naturally you would think I would choose the older, God chose the younger to be the facilitation of his promise. Well, um, he continues with an even clearer example in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So now, Isaac then, the son of promise, he then gets married to Rebekah, and they have twins. So now they have two sons. And the oldest born, the firstborn of those two sons is Esau, and the second is Jacob. And out of the two, now God chooses Jacob. Again, the younger the one who would not naturally be the one who you would think because he's not the older one. But God says, what he's showing us is that even through the descendants of Abraham and through the son of promise, even the descendants of Isaac, who's the son of promise, God chose a portion of their descendants, not all. Not all who are descendants of Abraham are his offspring. From the very beginning, God always chose a remnant to be, to be receiving his promise, to be saved. Now, Esau, um, it says that God hated Esau. God loved Jacob, and God hated Esau. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat this language. This is the language that the Bible chooses to use. So I'm not going to try to sit here and tell you, well, he doesn't really mean that he hated him, okay? Um, I do want us to understand that he's contrasting the fact that Isaac um, and Jacob received the promise, received the manifestation of the love of God, whereas Esau was hated in the sense that he was excluded from the promise of God. Well... Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Well, in the, with the, the Abraham and Sarah situation, you might be saying because he had a better mother. You know, because they had two different mothers, Sarah and Hagar. So he chose Isaac because of Sarah. Okay, but in this example, we have the same mother. They're twins. So why did he choose Jacob over Esau and you might say naturally, well, did he, did he choose Jacob because you know, Esau was a bad guy and Jacob was a good guy? 
And so he chose Jacob because Jacob was better than Esau. Well, no. If you read their story, you read their history, you'll see they're both bad guys. Jacob is just as messed up cheating people and as Esau was. So he says here, then why? Verse 11, though they were not yet born, had done neither nothing either good or bad, in order that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God chose Jacob before they were ever born, before they had done anything good or bad. So it was not the results of works, but of God's choice. Notice that he says here in verse 11, not a result of works, which we would then fill that in with saying, not a result of works, but a result of faith. That's how we would end that sentence. But that's not how he ends that sentence. He says, not a result of works. He says, but because of him who calls, that the purpose of election might Continue. So he says, it's not anything they did. It's because of him who calls. And so that those whom he elect might continue to be in the promise. We'll try to unpack that a little bit later. So God's word was not Failed, it has not failed because God's promise was always to a portion of Israel, the remnant. And his promises are all fulfilled in the true Israel. So he has not failed any, anything. And he proves that by showing that God has always continued the promise through a portion of Abraham's family, not the whole thing, okay? So that's point two, God's sovereign election, that he chose, elected. Election is not like we think of election. We just had elections this past week, and he's not saying that. Election in the sense of before the foundation of the world, God chose those whom he would express the blessings of his promise on, namely through Christ and salvation, that he chose beforehand. He elected beforehand. Point number three is is about God's sovereign mercy. Let's see in verse uh, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And so then maybe you're thinking as they were thinking. If God just chooses and he says, I love Jacob, I hate Esau, and he just gets to choose who's in and who's out, isn't that unjust? Is God unjust because he has done this and he says, by no means? Paul saw no unfairness in God freely choosing those who would be saved. God would be perfectly just to condemn every person and save no one. Think about this. I think we generally think of people as good people, innocent people, mostly good. And so God should then save all those who want to be saved, but he's saying all of us 
are evil people. Every person is wicked and deserving of condemnation, and that he chooses to save some indicates his grace, not his unfairness. We understand that whatever, as we read in here, whatever God does is right. Whatever he does is just. In Genesis 18, 25, says, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Abraham realized and trusted that God as the God of the universe will always do what is right. And so verse 14 here, where he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. What he's saying is that God always does what is right. But here's the thing. I'm not the judge of what is right. He is the standard for what is right. And all that he does is right. Verse 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Even in the language here, communicates our unworthiness for this because the word mercy is different from grace because the word mercy means not getting what you do deserve. So so he's saying every person who has ever lived has sinned against a holy God and deserves death and hell. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 then says the wages of that sin is death. And so all have sinned, and what we deserve because of our sin is death. So it's therefore not unjust for God to choose to save some from the punishment that they deserve. It's not unjust if a president chooses to pardon some people and not pardon all criminals. That's not unjust, that's merciful. He has done no one wrong who is deserving of punishment to choose to save some. Now, um, verse 16, he says, I'm in the wrong chapter now. Verse 16, he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy I think it's important to point out that our salvation is not determined by our human will, but on God who has mercy. Believe me, you don't want to relate to God based on justice. Here in the question here in this section, he says, for God to just to choose some and not others, Isn't that unjust? And he's saying, look, 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 let's walk that back a little bit. You don't want to relate to God based on justice. Because if God was just, he would punish us all. No no one would be saved. That would be the expression of his justice. What you want is his mercy. You need to plead for God's mercy 
and he has merciful and he's been compassionate to us. We need his mercy. He continues in verse 17 to illustrate this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So he uses the example of uh, Pharaoh. Now, if you know the history of Israel, they were enslaved as a people to um, the Egyptians under the rule of Pharaoh. And then God raised up Moses to come and deliver them from that slavery and to confront Pharaoh to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let us, you know, free us from this bondage. Let us go worship our Lord. And what it says in that, in that whole section, it, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart or Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It says like 17 times, some count 20 times. But what is uh, interesting is that in those 17 times, the first two, it says that uh, God hardened his heart. The, the next four say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, um, but that one of the verses in, in chapter 8 of Exodus, verse 15, says that he hardened his heart as the Lord had said indicating that God was behind this hardening. In Exodus um, chapter... I'm not even going to try to find it. I don't have it before me. I'm sorry. But the point is that he says, God raised up Pharaoh to show his power in defeating Pharaoh. Now, you might say, okay, yeah, so God hardens the heart of those who harden their heart towards God, because that's how this text is usually taught. So, so yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but only after he hardened his heart towards God. And so then God's just, if you will, in hardening Pharaoh's heart because he had already hardened his heart, and that kind of makes sense to us. The problem is we have to understand that all people are born with a hard heart towards God. We, we kind of think that, yeah, we're all pretty much good. And if someone chooses to then, at some point in their life, harden their heart towards God, then God's just in hardening their heart themselves. But he's like, all of us are born with a hard heart. And so God is at any point in our life just in hardening our heart because we're born hard towards him. Psalm 51.5 says, behold, I was brought forth. In iniquity. I was born in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. Ezekiel 36, 26, and he says, I will give you a new heart. As he's describing this new covenant relationship and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, saved by Christ through the cross, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's like, our natural position from birth is stone-hearted. And it takes God reaching in and ripping out our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. So God is perfectly just in hardening Pharaoh's heart because he was born hardened towards God. In verse 18, 
It says, do not be arrogant. I'm, I keep jumping into chapter 11. Verse 18 says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So salvation is based on free will, but not our free will, on God's free will. He has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, even though God decides, don't think that God decides arbitrarily. Don't think that God looks at humanity and is like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I choose you on my team, you know, and the rest of you, you know, that's not how he has reasons. He has purposes. He's the one who removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh to believe on him, to love him, to trust him. Now, that raises the uh, next question. How can God find fault in us? So point number four is God's sovereign prerogative. Let's look at verse 19. Then you will say, ah, man, I keep, I'm sorry, guys, I keep flipping to the wrong chapter. Verse 19 says, then you will say uh, to me, then, why does he still find fault for who can uh, resist his will. So he's saying here the natural question that we would have is if God chooses who is saved and who is excluded from salvation, then how can he hold us accountable for our sinful choices? If he's made the choice, how can he hold us accountable? That's what he's saying here. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If he cho- how can we resist his will if he chooses? So how can he hold us accountable? Well, his answer is this, verse 20. Who are you, <laughs> O oh, man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? He says, who are you, O oh, man, to answer back to God? Now, I don't want you to think that this is an issue with the question as much as it is with the heart behind the question because it can seem like you're like God's like not willing to take any questions. And so you ask a question, he's like, don't ask me that. I think he's more poking at the heart of the question because this word where he says, who are you to answer back to God? This word answer back means to criticize in return or to answer again. Uh, antagonistically. Who are you? Oh God. I've been saddened as I've studied because I I, I seek to study both sides of arguments and so I've studied pretty thoroughly uh, the opposing side to what I might be teaching today and I've been so saddened to see people who are preachers, Bible teachers, apologists, that this is their premise for their worldview. Who is how can God do that? That's unfair. And he says, you better be careful who you're talking to. This is kind of illustrated in uh, the birth of Jesus. The, the, an angel came to uh, Zechariah um, and said, um, Zechariah, now Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And so he comes to Zechariah, who is like Abraham, really old, past the 
having children years. They don't have any kids. And this angel comes to Zechariah and says, hey, um, uh, you're going to have a son. And he's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. Now, uh, Zechariah responds with, how can this be? I am old. My wife, she's almost dead. How is this going to be? And the angel responds to him and says, you're just not going to talk for a little while. And strikes him with uh, muteness. He he did not speak for the duration of the entire pregnancy. You're just not going to talk again for a while. You just think about what you said. And so in that sense, it was, who are you to answer back to God? You just think about who you're talking to. And, uh, but the thing, the thing that's perplexing about that is that same angel then goes to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he says, Mary, you are going to give birth to the Messiah. Blessed are you. The lo- you're going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And Mary's response, because she's a teenage virgin, she knows how babies are made. She goes, how can this, how's, how can this be? For I'm, I'm a virgin. And the angel does not strike her with muteness. He does not rebuke her or scold her. He says, this is how it's going to happen. The power of the Most High will come over you, overshadow you. You will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you will give birth to the Messiah. What's the difference? I think the difference is in the heart behind the questioning that Zechariah was antagonistic in unbelief and Mary was sincere and genuine. I really want to know, how is this going to work? And then you know what Mary says? She says, she, put, she bows her face to the ground and says, do with me what you have said. I am a servant of the Lord. So it's the heart behind it. It's one thing to sincerely ask, you know, how can this help me understand? It's another thing to try to judge God and accuse him of being unjust or unfair. And he illustrates this by saying, "Um, who are you, um, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? How have you made me like this? He's like, you are clay in the potter's hand. And it's the prerogative of the creator to do what he wishes with his creation. I think sometimes we think about God like he's, he's, a, he's, a lot, he's a smarter version of ourselves. He's a more capable, powerful version of us. And he's like, I don't think you understand that the God of the universe is so much different and greater and more He's on a whole another level than you. It's the, it's the contrast like, say you're clay, And he's the potter. That's the difference. He does what he wants with his creation. For God's glory to be on full display, his character. uh, Let's just finish reading these verses first. Um, 
Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which, which he has prepared beforehand for glory and so he says, look, God, as the potter, he and any potter, as you create something, you decide what you do with it. And so, um, and I've heard people preach this, you know, why would anybody make a, a pot to destroy it or, or whatever? And seemingly mocking God, because that's what he's saying. What he's saying, there's some, there's some things, you, you take the same clay or material, and you might make, uh, I realize that's not necessarily clay, but the same material, and you might make a toilet, for a dishonorable purpose, and you might make fine china for honorable purposes. And it's the prerogative of the one who's molding and creating the thing to say, I want to make this for dishonorable use and this for honorable use, and who is the clay to say, why have you done this to me? Why have you made me a toilet? Don't you know this is a Terrible job, let's keep it clear. It's a terrible job here. Or maybe he's formed out of clay. If you're an armsman, skeet that are designed to be thrown in the air and shot for the good pleasure of those who are practicing their shot. <laughs> and yet he can also make a vase to display um, beautiful flowers. And, and it's the prerogative of the creator to do with what he wants. He has the right to do with what he wants with his creation. Uh, I think what we have to understand is that for God's glory to be on full display, you see, God's about his glory. That's what this is all about, is his glory. And for his glory to be on full display, his character must be seen. And God's, God is love, but he is not only love. God also is holy, and he is righteous, and he is just. And so if God just, he could have decided just to save everyone. Why didn't he do that? Let's just save everyone. Then we wouldn't see the nature of his full nature on display. We wouldn't see his wrath expressed toward sin on display. Tim Keller uh, said about this, if God had mercy on all or condemned all, we would not see his glory. I don't think Paul is giving us uh, much more than a hint here, but it is very suggestive hint, for the big question is, if God could have saved everyone, why didn't he? And here Paul seems to say that God's chosen course to save some and to leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than any other scheme we can imagine. And so why would he choose to do this so that his, his nature could be fully seen and he could receive the most glory. This is the best possible situation for that to occur. Verse 22 again. 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? And so in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, it is impossible to appreciate God's saving grace unless we see it against the sobering backdrop of his judgment. You ever seen these painters paint you know, how, how could God possibly allow or choose some to not be saved and save others? And, and you, you're seeing these painters who they just, uh, a lot of them are very viral videos because for the first half of the video, it looks like they're just creating chaos. And they just smear blacks and dark blues and dark purple, and they're smearing all these dark colors all over the canvas. And you're like, what are they doing? And then they come in with the color and bring it all out. And what happens is you wouldn't see the beauty of the colorful uh, painting without the base of the darkness to contrast the beauty of the light. God's making a beautiful picture of his glory. And so he must be totally on display. I don't want us to get, though, that God is up in heaven reveling in the torture of people. Ezekiel, 30, uh, Ezekiel 18, 23 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Again, let's remember God's heart at the beginning for the lost. And here he's like, I don't, I don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want to see people turn and be saved. But I still don't understand, you might say. How can God choose to save some and still hold us accountable for our actions? Well, notice that Paul's answer is not necessarily a a logical explanation of how this works. Um, He just kind of restates that God is God and you are not. And there is some mystery in how it all works. We can't seem to totally rationalize or harmonize how God's, how God's sovereignty relates to human responsibility. If God is totally in control, then how are we responsible for our sin? But that doesn't seem to be a problem for God. It seems to be a problem for us. Uh, One commentator, theologian Douglas Moo, says, uh, It is significant that Paul here offers no logical explanation for the compatibility of God's sovereignty with the equally biblical teaching that God is fair and that human beings are justifiably blameworthy for their actions. We would do well to follow this approach, to affirm the truth of these great biblical doctrines without eliminating or weakening one or the other Though an instance on an exhaustive, uh, through an instance of exhaustive explanation. This is a point at which, with Paul, we should be prepared to recognize a mystery beyond our comprehension. And so he's like, this is, this is a mystery. The mechanics of God's providence over sin is a mystery. And people have tried to explain it away to make it make sense to us, but we have to understand that some things aren't going to make sense to us. 
the best way I have found to think about this is this. Um, he's describing two different things. A salvation through God's perspective versus salvation through our perspective. And so here in chapter 9, most of it, he's describing salvation through God's perspective. That God sovereignly chooses those whom he will save. But then at the end of the chapter, he actually describes salvation through our perspective. That by faith, we respond to what God has done and trust him for salvation. He actually says that at the end of this chapter, he says, What shall we say then, verse 30, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that righteous, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel pursued the law would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. So he, he just goes on to say, we respond through faith in Christ. So God's sovereignty is his perspective of salvation, and our faith in choosing God is our perspective, and these things we must hold in tension. But this truth forces us to wrestle with whether or not we really see ourselves as truly unworthy for the gospel. Karl Barth said of this passage, the more man finds these texts to be harsh, the more he is wedded to his own righteousness. Do you, do you deep down believe that God owes you salvation? That you don't deserve condemnation and hell? Scripture's testimony is that I am unworthy, genuinely worthy to be condemned forever. Oswald Sanders says, what will amaze us as we look backwards from eternity is not the severity of God's justice, but the greatness of his mercy. And I think it's important for us to note that we have to understand there's no one in hell wishing they were in heaven. We kind of sometimes think of God sending people, undeserving people to hell, and if they could just get out, they would, and if they could just get to heaven, they would, but, but you understand, heaven's for people who love the Lord, and if you don't love the Lord, heaven will be miserable for you. Those who are in hell, they don't want heaven. Um, whenever, uh, and I, okay, so I saw this this week. I, I know we're over time. If you want me to wrap up right now, I will. You're just going to just vote. We'll vote right now if you want. So here's the thing. Here's something I thought of, a detail I noticed in a story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. You know this story? He tells this story in Luke chapter 16, I believe, where the rich man, um, he, he's, you know, he's rich, and he's living up the life, and he's having a good time, and Lazarus is this poor man who's just wanting the crumbs off the king's table, and the rich man is kind of malevolent towards the Lazarus and kind of treating him poorly, and the dogs are licking the swords of Lazarus. So, so then they both die. And it says that, the, that Lazarus went to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom it might be called. And uh, the rich man went to Hades. So they're in two different places in the afterlife. They're separated by this chasm. Lazarus is in paradise, rich man is in torment. What I noticed about this story this week that I've never noticed before 
is that the first thing that the rich man says to Abraham in this story is not, notice this, it is not, get me out of here! Because I think that's what I would say. If I was in torment and I see people in paradise, I would be going, get me out of here! Take me to where you are! I want to be where you are! That's not what he says. He says, Abraham, can you send Lazarus to get some water to relieve the torment of my thirst? And I I was just fascinated that the rich man's desire in Hades was not to get out and to be in heaven where God is. It was just to not be suffering where he is. He's perfectly content being separated from God. He just doesn't want to be tormented by that separation. And so don't get the idea that there's people in heaven that are, man, if they would just let me into heaven, if they just let me into heaven. He's like, no. People who are in hell are people who have rejected Christ, who have rejected God, who hate God. And they might not want to be suffering, but they certainly don't want to be in the presence of God. Finally, is God's sovereign inclusion. What's fascinating is that it seems like that that it teaches that God chooses some, excludes others, that he has elected those to be saved before the foundation of the world. But this salvation is inclusive, not in the sense that it is everyone can get in no matter what, but that it's offered to all types of people. Look at verse 24. He says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And those who were not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries to, uh, out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And so I think it's wonderful that he says all types of people are invited into this salvation relationship. That if you will believe on him today, you will be numbered among God's elect, chosen as a vessel for mercy. See, God's decision in these matters does not disclose to us that they are by any means meant to cause us to despair, the scriptures are plain that God will never refuse to accept or cast away those who diligently seek him. The invitation still stands, John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And so it's a response to the gospel. So you might be saying, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? Do you believe on Jesus? then you're among the elect. Well, I don't want to believe on Jesus. Then maybe you're not among the elect. Well, that's not fair. I want to to be among the elect. Then believe on Jesus, and you'll be among the elect. And so this, this doctrine does not by any means make us think that we are to go around excluding people from the gospel. We are to preach the good news to all types of people, all over the place. And it is God who works on the hearts of men and women to believe on Him. And you can know today, if you want salvation, believe on Him. 
Believe on the work of Christ on the cross and you will be saved. So how do we apply this text to our life? A few things I just want to remind us of and we'll pray. We have to be reminded that we're not saved by association. You're not saved by your parents' faith or by your tradition or by the church or by your denomination or anything. You're not saved by association. Um, uh, my mother has told me she was really helped by this, that God has no grandchildren. That he only has children. You can't inherit the, the faith in a sense that you must personally believe on him. And just like Israel, not all those born of Abraham are offspring of Abraham, only a remnant. You're not saved by your association, so trust in him. Place your faith in him today. Rest assured that God is able to fulfill his promise. He is totally, this doctrine helps me trust God that he is totally in control. That he's going to accomplish everything he said he would accomplish because he is in total control. He's totally sovereign. Cultivate a love for the lost. Cultivate a heart like God for the lost. Pray that God would give you his heart. Pray for the lost. See, some people say, oh, you believe that God chose, you know, who would be saved and who would not be saved. So why even pray? If God already made the decision, if God already predestined, why even pray for the lost? And I would say, if you don't believe that, why would you pray for the lost? If you don't believe that God can reach into somebody's heart, pull out their heart of stone, and replace it with a heart of flesh by his own will, why would you pray for their salvation? If you don't believe that God can actually change somebody, that it's their own free will to respond to it. No, God works on their heart and grabs a hold of them as they're headed to hell and makes them his own. And so I have great confidence when I pray for people's salvation because I know God can get them. No matter how hard their heart is, no matter how far God, they might have been rejecting God for 50 years but I know that God can reach in there and grab that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And so it gives me tremendous hope for the people in my life who do not yet believe. Because I know God can work on their heart and I just pray, God, get them. Get them, God. And so pray for the lost and proclaim the gospel to the lost because God is able to transform the heart of the hardest people. This doctrine has empowered and comforted missionaries throughout history because they knew as they went into the hardest places to reach who have never heard the gospel, they knew that God has the power to save. And so it empowered them. They go and proclaim and are just faithful and obedient. And God is the one who changes the heart. And today, if you have not trusted Christ, know that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are among his elect, and I encourage you to do that today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion, but surrender to him today. Father in heaven, I, um, Lord, I thank you that you've chosen us. I thank you that you've called us to be your sons and, and daughters. I thank you that you have adopted and grafted us into the family of God, to the true Israel. That we are the recipients of your mercy. I thank you for your mercy. That not based on any good thing that I did or we did, but just based on your love and kindness, your mercy towards sinners. I thank you for that. 
Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here who hasn't trusted you, that today would be the day that you just take their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and cause them to trust in you, place their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And Lord, I I ask, um, God, that you would guard us from allowing this doctrine uh, that you gave us in Romans 9 to cause us to stumble. I pray that it would help us see you as more glorious, more merciful, more loving, and help it keep us from misunderstanding. pray that you'd help us as we wrestle with the mystery of your sovereignty. Holy Spirit, apply this to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.